Please remain standing for our scripture lesson out of 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. That was a lovely offertory today. And just bless God for the glories of his name. And then to be able to as well sing together the wonderful doxology and, and the praise and the glory of Patria. Just all those things together are just so glorious. We thank God for the good gifts in the church. So thankful. I am very excited to preach this sermon to you today. I've been looking forward to to it. So without further ado, let's go to the throne of grace and pray. Father, thank you for your love to us in Jesus. You've provided us everything in him. You've received us in him. You have given us his body, his blood, his soul, his life, his being, his very person. We thank you that you haven't left us shy of any good thing in Christ Jesus. And we pray that you will bless the sermon and the hearing of it today. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's scripture lesson in so many ways couldn't be more applicable, relevant, fitting, suited for us than it is. It's very, very amazing how God does these sorts of things. And next Sunday, if you're able to be here, and of course we know Christmas Day there'll be a lot of travelers, the text is wonderfully adapted for the Advent season. We're going to read about Jesus coming into the earth, being sent by the Father for us as the propitiation for our sins. Only a great, glorious, sovereign, providential God could do that sort of thing. Now, the Greek word for overcome, used in verse 4 of today's text, will be very central to this particular lesson and sermon today. And that word is nekao, and it's a rather powerful one. It speaks of overcoming or conquering a foe. In this case, the immediate referent is the Antichrist and those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus from last week's text and sermon that you might recall if you were able to be here. Also, this word nikao is used in John's writing of the book of Revelation, which has a lot of references, especially in chapters 2 and 3, to those in the churches who overcome or who conquer are promised by Jesus great and wonderful, tremendous gifts. All kinds of very unique things. You can read about this in Revelation 2.26 or 3.21. Now, after preparing this sermon today, I have to confess to you that I think I am now a pretty self-conscious post-millennialist, okay? At least in the sense that I truly believe that with regard to all the promises of God and all the statements he makes about Jesus and his church, none of them can fail. Even the most preposterous ones, like the ones we read in, for instance, Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, about all the nations coming to the king in this world, coming to the church in time and space, I confess I believe them all. 
And in fact, the great reference for this is 2 Corinthians 1.20, where Paul essentially says, all the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. Can't do much better than that. So I hope you'll join me this morning in that kind of perspective. It's a pretty revolutionary one. It's very countercultural, and the religious world doesn't adapt it, adopt it either, but we should. And let's make it our goal this Resurrection Day to be transformed in our thinking through Jesus' triumph on our behalf, looking together at great verses, 1 John chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, overcoming the world. The doctrine, regenerate Christian, Christ, churchmen have already overcome the world. Now that assertion in itself is thoroughly revolutionary, just the fact that it's already happened. We usually think that we have to get up on top of a problem or do something in, over, in, able, in order for us to be able to say we've overcome the world. But that's not what this text is saying. He's saying that we have already overcome the world because with regard to the most important areas and issues and things of life, that's exactly the case. The church has overcome the world. But we must remember, dears, that this overcoming the world is all in Christ Jesus, and we participate in this overcoming as we are in Christ Jesus, as his faithful, visible, yet struggling, sinful, forgiven church. Regenerate churchmen have already overcome the world first. This is because we are born of and are from God. Yeah, that's the reason we've presently even now overcome the world, solely by virtue of the fact that we're born into the church kingdom of Christ via baptism, by water and the Spirit. It's that simple and yet that profound. Now, none of the doctrine of today's text or sermon in any way contradicts the New Testament's teaching that we continue to overcome the world through our sanctification process in Jesus, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, as we're being made more and more into his image. So there is a secondary continual overcoming of the world and our own flesh and sin and Satan and all of that. But the glories of this current standing in Christ, where all our sins are forgiven us, we're washed clean, we're adopted into the, ch- into the church of God as children of the great King, these are overwhelmingly fantastic promises and truths. Not for some future time, but for now. It's because of this that we've overcome the world. Please understand, the world's fondest hope would be that it would overcome you and subject you to the miserable status that they find themselves in. But that's impossible. That can't be done because you have already beaten them to the punch. You have overcome the world in Christ Jesus and the grace of God. Regenerate churchmen truly have already overcome the world because we're born of and are from God. And our father is stronger than the world's father, Satan. Sometimes on playgrounds, uh, boys, at least in my generation, were heard to say things like, my dad is tougher than your dad, or something like that. Anybody can relate to this? My, my dad is tougher than your dad. You know, on the battlefield of life, in a profoundly fallen, broken, confused, and fractured world, which is still totally good because God, the perfect God, created it, 
the whole resolution of victory or defeat comes down to who's got the stronger father. Does the church have the stronger father or does the world have the stronger father, the mightier one? Now these days it might seem like, might seem like, Satan and his human slave horde are getting the upper hand, going all out with one final great effort to topple King Jesus and finally get rid of this nuisance, the church on earth, and the glorious gospel. But there's, despite all their hard work, and we have to hand it to them, the world is working overtime with great passion and commitment. We grant them that, but they've already failed and they can never succeed. They cannot overcome us. It's not possible. And why? Because our God is bigger and better than their God is. Bottom line. Bigger and better in every way. Now, none of this means that we, the saints of the true church, aren't going to suffer, aren't going to be persecuted, aren't going to have to endure affliction, trial, tribulation, trouble. We're promised all that. That's part of overcoming the world because God uses that to conform us into the image of Jesus taking all our hardships and even using those bad things to make us comprehensively triumphant in Christ as per Romans 8, 35-39. Let's look at these exciting verses 4-6, 1 John 4, and thrill at the beautiful realities inherent in the churches overcoming the world. Let's get right into them, okay? Let's jump right in right now. What are the beautiful realities inherent in the churches overcoming the world? First, this is an established fact of redemptive history. Verse 4, notice this. Little children, you are from God and have, past tense, overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And again, the them is referring back to the Antichrist and those that do not confess Jesus as coming in the flesh, as you might recall from the earlier verses. Now, much of what we talked about earlier has already been covered, but this amazing verse 4 really does merit our refocus. So let's take another look at it. First of all, notice how the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, the Son of Thunder, This interesting man with passion. You know, elect Christians can have passion about everything and yet completely trust the sovereign God. The fact that we believe God is God and sovereign doesn't mean we don't care. We do care. Romans 9 is a great example where the Apostle Paul, that's the great sovereignty chapter, and he opens it up saying, I wish that I would give my life for the Israelites that they might be saved. I'd be willing to do it. And yet... In that same chapter, he acknowledges that God is completely sovereign. Passion and sovereignty. It's a beautiful and glorious thing. Now notice that we're called little children here, the beginning of verse 4. Little children, by definition, are dependent. We're dependent, especially upon our Heavenly Father. And that's why we need Him all the time. Lord's day to Lord's day and throughout the week. 
And notice the second part of verse 4, that our birthright is our victory. Not because we did something, but simply because of who we are. Our birthright is our victory. Why do we baptize the church's children? Because they have a birthright. We're from God, and by his grace alone we have overcome them, the Antichrist, and those who don't acknowledge Jesus. And finally, this remarkable verse 4 ends with the sensational teaching that the reason we triumph over the world is because our God who dwells in us and is among us is greater, quote-unquote, than he who is in the world. And that's a reference, of course, to Satan, the, the spirit of the world. So, dears, we don't win this battle of life because we have bigger numbers, in terms of human beings, we do if you count all the angels, it's not a contest. But we don't win it because we have bigger numbers or because we prevail at the ballot box or because we're able to get the winds of fickle human opinion on our side for a while. That's not the way we overcome the world. Instead, we conquer and even crush the world, the devil, the Antichrist, and anti-Christianity because God in Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is Emmanuel, Isaiah 7.14, God with us. And we think about that often at Christmas. Now this fact that we have overcome the world in Christ Jesus cannot be changed or altered by anything. If the whole number of the elect were contained in this worship auditorium here this morning, it would be more than enough for the promise to be fulfilled and to be true and to come to pass. But we know that God has many other people all over the globe. The beautiful realities inherent in the church's overcoming the world, this is an established fact of redemptive history. And this explains why things are the way they are, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. I suppose we've all heard that expression, it is what it is. And this verse 5 is something of a sanctified use of that somewhat obnoxious saying, if you will. I think um, John is basically saying that. That in truth, the world is the way it is, because according to verse 5, it talks to itself and it listens to itself. You know, that's really a big problem with the world we live in, and always has been. We grant the church does the same thing. We admit it. The faithful church should talk to itself and listen to itself. And we do. We admit it, and that's a good thing. We're commanded to do that. You've got these two realms of humanity that don't seem to intersect. This one talks to itself and listens to itself, and the church talks to itself and listens to itself. Now, this doesn't mean we can't intersect. We can. The church in love should intersect with the world, but we have to be in charge of that discussion. We have to set the boundaries for it. And we have to have the tone and the tune of love and grace in it. So it's not like these two worlds cannot and should not intersect. They do. But the world talks to itself 
and listens to itself. That's what John just said here. I'll read it. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Makes sense. But the big difference is that when we talk and listen to ourselves, we're talking and listening to ourselves around Jesus Christ, the ultimate truth. When they're talking and listening to themselves, they are listening ultimately to their father, like we listen to ours, they're listening to theirs. The father of lies, Satan, John 8:44c, And many of them gladly hear him. As regenerate Christian churchmen, we should almost fully understand why the people of the world need to continually do this and lie to themselves and each other, because we used to do the same thing when we were dead in trespasses and sins too. We understand because we did it. We were in bondage to Satan, the world, the flesh, and anti-Christianity. The world does this because though they intuitively know the truth, that God exists, that he's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's powerful, he created a huge world, nobody can be so stupid as not to understand that. They comprehend that, And it's not that God forces them not to believe. This is one of the, the slanders that sometimes cast it at the uh, Christians that believe in the Scripture's doctrine of God's sovereignty. God doesn't force people not to believe. And it's not that people created in the image of God are, are too doltish to be able to see these things. The problem is the will. The will is the problem. People do not want to believe the truth because in a fallen with our fallen wills they simply will not to believe the truth. But that doesn't mean it's all over for the world because it wasn't all over for us either. And there is hope and that's one of the glories of Christmas. Indeed it is. The beautiful realities inherent in the church's overcoming the world. This is an established fact of redemptive history. This explains why things are the way they are. And finally, this extols the glories and the practicalities of divine election. Verse 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now again, sometimes these verses can seem um, amazing and almost overwhelming. But look at verse 6. This text is breathtaking. I found it quite helpful myself, almost innovative in my own thinking. What I'm saying from this verse 6 is this. Those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells listen to me, especially as I preach, And they will listen to you as you bring that same message you heard to them, the good news of the gospel. Conversely, those in whom the Holy Spirit does not dwell by faith do not and will not and never will listen to me. And I accept that, especially as I preach. And they will not, do not, and never will, barring the mercy and grace and sovereign work of God, listen to you as you bring the good news to them either. So what's the point of all that? Well, one of the impressive points is that divine election determines everything, especially with regard to our ministries. I can't imagine how anybody would be able to do a a full-orbed 
gospel church ministry without this perspective. And of course, the longer we're around, the more we recognize the absolute truth of what the written word of God is saying, as it says it here in verse 6. The Apostle John, being a convinced Calvinist, speaking anachronistically, of course, and with all the Old and New Testament writers, and the Lord Jesus himself, although I would say that with humility, he was, of course, he taught us that, as well as all the church's best theologians, pastors in all of its eras, Old and New Testament, lays out for us a very practical way to look at life and ministry. And that is to recognize that it's all of God's grace and that we in the church should face this truth and the world as it actually is. But never to fear the world. See, this is the thing, the glories of being a Reformed Christian beyond our imagination sometimes. Because, yes, it can seem to be a fearful world, but we don't need to fear it. God's love has overcome all of that in Christ Jesus. Love overcomes fear every time. We're growing in that love. We're understanding it more. We're trusting God that what he says about us really is true, even though our heart condemns us, the world condemns us. Satan is our accuser. False Christians are always after us. Religious people are our biggest problem most of the time. Despite all of that, we don't fear. Instead, with John, we acknowledge the manifold manifest truth that according to this very verse 6, we may, quote, know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error merely on the basis of who will and who will not listen to us. Isn't that interesting? As always, let's do some more application this morning and absolutely marvel at the incredible confidence that we, the true church, possess even now. Now, the boldness that we have in Christ as his beloved and forgiven church is not arrogance, self-importance or pompousness. It's none of that. Rather, it is a humble and faithful acceptance of what God actually says about us, even when our hearts find it hard to believe, and even when these sayings are hidden from others, even from those who claim to be faithful Christians. And therefore, with the prospects of boundless insight, encouragement, and fortification before us, all in Jesus, let us gape with faith at the incredible confidence that we, the true church, possess even now. First, let the world become as vile as it wants to be. Now, that statement is not a cold, harsh, and uncaring one. And indeed, we really don't want the world to become as vile as it wants to be. But our attitude is, let the world become as vile as it wants to be. Indeed, the only people on earth who really care about anything of real importance are the regenerated Christian churchmen. And this statement about let the world become as vile as it wants is not meant to imply that we don't feel the horribleness and the wickedness of the things the world does in defacing, seeking to deface the image of God in human beings, and even if it could degrade the glory of God. We're the only ones, really, dears, who get enraged about the things the world does. 
recklessly murdering babies, butchering children and their bodies and souls, and now seeking to justify pedophilia as one of their later abominations. It's common. Americans will accept it. It'll come, barring the great work of God. So with John Calvin's commentary on Romans 9 about having passion and yet believing the sovereign God, we do both. We actually care. We feel these things. Let the world become as vile as it wants to be. We do care. But at the same time, we fiercely resist, fight, and defeat all these people, politicians, whoever it may be, who promote these atrocities. And at the end of each day, we continue to trust a sovereign, absolutely, completely in control God, who has placed us on this earth as his church to be light and salt in the world and to care about these things but to do it in a way that does not degrade the glory of God and our belief in his absolute sovereignty. He is good. Let the world become as vile as it wants to be. Our victory over it is as sure as Christ rising from the dead. You know, the world daily commits the crimes I just mentioned above, plus many more like sodomy and the manipulation of races and genders and all that sort of thing. But none of this means that they are triumphing over us, though at times it may seem so to our imperfectly sanctified spiritual eyes. The reality is this, according to the written word of God itself. Now this is one of those places where it's just good to be able to see the Bible and believe it. Even when it doesn't feel like that's what's happening. According to the written word of God, not just in 1 John 4, but throughout the Bible. And interesting also, according to all of past church and redemptive history as well, the faithful church in Jesus, even though we have to suffer and be persecuted and be afflicted and all that, the faithful church, not the lost, dead, sinful, polluted world, are the victors, not just later in heaven, but here and now where it really matters. This is pretty revolutionary. And why are we victors? Because Jesus Christ rose from the tomb as the conquering, victorious king. That's why we're victors. And according to Ephesians 2, 4-7, to when Jesus rose from the dead, we rose with him. Therefore, dears, your faith is in a good place when it's in him. You are the victors, the true church. Know that you have the victory in Christ, whose blood has atoned for all of your sins, past, present, future, all of them, and whose glorious resurrection has fully and completely secured your justification, your right standing before a holy God. Beloved, overcoming the world is the inheritance of the redeemed ecclesia. Let us bless God that we always in Christ alone overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we do that. We overcome the world through Christ Jesus. What a great text. Thank you for it. Help us to be the lovers of the world in the proper sense, and yet the victors over the world. We thank you that you've given us all that we need in Jesus.
the glorious triumphant king who rules and reigns even as we heard sung today with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. We thank you in his name. Amen.